Thanks for tuning in to the Start HBS podcast, where we talk with folks who have been on audacious journeys and started meaningful ventures. Today's host is a special one, Joel Peterson, his HBS class of 1973. He is the current chairman of JetBlue Airways. Also, he's been a professor at Stanford Graduate School of Business for the past 23 years. Joel has a career of serendipity. He started as the CEO and CFO of one of the world's largest real estate development companies, Trammell Crow. Left that business to start a private equity firm called Peterson Venture Partners, which has a billion dollars of assets under management. And since then, he's spent time teaching at Stanford and working as the chairman of JetBlue. In today's conversation, myself, Alex Spencer, current RC at Harvard Business School, along with Zeynep Yavus, another RC at Harvard Business School, talk with Joel about his experiences starting JetBlue. Do you think you might be able to take me back to maybe your RC year or EC year at HBS? How do you think your section mates might describe you then? And how do you think that has changed over time? Okay. Yeah, so I th- I'm sure they would say that I was quiet, um, not very self-assured. Uh, I'd gone directly out of three years of undergrad. I hadn't worked before I'd been there. I really hadn't had any business classes. And uh, so I think they would have said I was the least likely to succeed in my section. By the way, Ray Dalio was a section mate of mine. Uh, we were actually, we were uh, hall mates uh, in Gallatin Hall together. Okay. And I think uh, people would have worried about Ray about as much as they worried about me. We were both, <laughs> I think, directly out of undergrad and not one of the Ivies. So I think uh, we, we were not likely we're not the most likely to succeed in our section. And I think one of the challenges of young people, and as you say in your book, trust is built on results and it's built on track record. And if you look at young people coming out of business school, we don't really have a track record. Uh, you do have a track record. <laughs> you have a big track record. And if I, if I were to get your 10 best friends, aside and ask them to give me the five words that they would use to describe Zainab, they I would see some of the same, I'd certainly see the same concepts, if not exactly the same words. In other words, you have a brand and that brand is a promise. And that promise is how people learn to trust you. Now, you'll actually develop that brand around business metrics over time, but you have a brand and you have a powerful brand today. Can you maybe take me to a place or an anecdote or a moment in in your life where forgiveness played an element in maybe a relationship or a business transaction that you'd been a part of? You know, I'm particularly interested in the case where it may have, you know, been beneficial over a long period of time as opposed to, you know, just one instance. Well, so the first guy I worked for gave me an assignment uh, to raise equity capital on a real estate project. I ran the numbers, uh, turned them into him and went home at night and reviewed the numbers as I was home and I realized I'd made a mistake. And um, I was horrified. I went in the next day and said, gosh, let me correct this thing. And he says, I've already cut a deal on it. Well, that would have been easy for him to say, you idiot. You know, how could you do that? And you need to check right. your work and, you know, pounded me. Uh, but he didn't. 
he just said, you know, um, there'll be other deals and, you know, I'm sure you've learned from it. And, you know, that idea that I was basically forgiven for that and can move on allowed me then to take other risks and do other things. Now, in point of fact, what I did was I called the guy up with whom he'd done the deal and I threw myself on his mercy and said, we've got to recut this deal. And he did. If you fire somebody when they make a mistake, they make a million dollar error, all that's happened is you take the million dollar loss and whoever hires them next gets the benefit of that training. And I think most people learn from their mistakes. I think you catch them soon, uh, which is one of the ways that you actually deal with betrayal. Now, that's a harsh word to use, but I think anytime somebody doesn't deliver on a promise or disappoints, it's a form of betrayal. And if you allow that to fester, what happens is trust goes down. And so, in my experience, the best thing to do is deal with it all. Deal with it immediately. Get over it, fix it, move on. To what extent have these lessons permeated in in your personal life as a father? Have you found that a lot of these principles you can apply. I mean, I, I presume you're not interviewing your children and obviously it's right. a relationship. I actually have. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I used, yeah, I used to sit them down in my library on my lap when they were little and just say, <laughs> tell me about you and yeah. listen, let them tell me about them. So, yeah, I think, I think you do pay a lot of attention to your kids and what they do tell you. And I, I always used to like to know who their friends were and get to know their friends you pick up a lot just by observing and listening. So I think you have to learn to be observant and non-judgmental. The way I always say it now when I'm talking to other parents is be a cheerleader, not a policeman. And then maybe we can talk a little bit about, you know, later on in your career, some more critical you know, business issues. Like, for example, one of the things that happened at JetBlue when they had, I think it was in 2007, when they had this flight crisis. I think it was because of the weather conditions. They had flights canceled back to back for five days, which was a major crisis. And it was a, in a way, it was a mistake of the airlines, which CEO later on came and he, he accepted it and he reflected on it. And it'd be great to hear both kind of your personal experience. And then maybe we can talk a little bit about JetBlue and what happened then. And what were some leadership lessons that you learned from that experience? So I think early on in my career, I always thought you could spackle over, you know, anything and spin would get you out of things. I learned that you can't talk your way out of problems you behaved your way into. You have to behave your way out of them. And typically that means facing them immediately. I've told you the story about when I made a mistake on the on the numbers, I went and, and uh, admitted it immediately the next day. And then I met with the guy with whom I'd done a deal and he was good enough to recut the deal. But most of my most serious mistakes have been uh, not letting someone go early enough. Um, You know, I think there's that old adage about hire slowly, fire quickly. I think you often know when somebody's not quite working out. And I think I've made the same mistake that you hear almost everybody say that I should have let somebody go sooner than I did. We're all reluctant to do that. In terms of JetBlue, David Neeleman was the founder of JetBlue, and he's a phenomenal uh, entrepreneur, what I think is the greatest commercial airline entrepreneur in history, including Richard Branson and Herb Keller. David's really amazing. But, you know, when this happened, and it really happened because there was a freezing rain at JFK, 
the tires froze to the tarmac. They were not letting planes take off. They would let them land, but they couldn't take off. So there's this wow. huge buildup of airframes out on the tarmac, and the FAA wouldn't let anybody go out with tugs and pull them around or with buses. So we were trapped. It would have been easy to go on the TV programs and say, we're no worse than anyone else. It wasn't our fault. Uh, I mean, there were a lot of things that we could have said, but David said, no, I'm going to go on and I'm going to apologize to our customers. Then he went further. He drafted before Congress required it, a customer bill of rights, which cost JetBlue a lot. I even recommended at the time, I said, David, you're overreacting. This is too much. You're too apologetic. But he went ahead and did it. And I think it was his, his sincerity and how he felt about it that really connected with people. And the brand didn't really suffer because of how he handled it. So I don't think that's always the right way to handle it. But in that case, he really did a phenomenal job. And so, Joel, in, in sort of looking at your career, it, it seems like one that you necessarily couldn't plan coming out of Harvard. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> so in your case, it seems like, so, so you were at Trammell Crow, of, and in, which maybe we can touch on for a second, what Trammell Crow does and what an incredibly large, complex real estate development job is like. And then maybe could you touch on how that experience prepared you for JetBlue, and you're now obviously the, the chairman of the company. So uh, Trammell Crow was the largest private real estate development company in the world. But when I joined, there were 163 people there. Trammell had just started hiring uh, MBAs. I think he hired three or four Harvard MBAs uh, that year. It was fun because he empowered people. He totally empowered young people. He bet on young people and he gave them the right to make decisions and to fix. He was really a great example of that. And, and so you learn a lot when you have a lot of authority. Uh, you end up making mistakes. You end up fixing your own mistakes and, um, and you grow a lot. How did he empower his employees? Was there anything specific that he did? Well, I mean, in general, what he did was he made people leasing agents and they went out and made deals and they learned the market from that. And then they bought land and they built buildings and they leased them up and they were owners of it. So they were, they were really principals very early on. In my case, I was asked to uh, raise $10 million of equity for an office project in Paris, France. And it was, um, it was a bad project. I mean, it was on the wrong side of town. Uh, it was not leasing up well. And as I looked at it, I said, whoever I raise this $10 million from is going to lose it. And uh, so I read the loan documents and I realized that where we were in the, in the stack of obligations, and I said, you know, we should give this back to the lenders and then just manage it for them. We should just step out of the ownership. And the financial officer at the time was upset with me. I remember him saying, it's my job to tell you to raise the $10 million. It's your job to go get it. And as I looked at it, I thought, oh, this is going to be bad. And so I actually went to McKinsey in Paris and got a job with McKinsey. And they heard about it and they said, wait a minute, why are you doing that? I said, well, you know, I don't want to do something that I think is wrong. And so they, uh, long story short, pretty soon they asked me to come back to Dallas to be the treasurer of the company. And within six months, the treasurer had left or the CFO had left, and I became the CFO of the company. So for the next 10 years, 
I was the CFO. So I had tons and tons of authority as a young kid. A lot of our audience are HBS students, you know, getting their MBAs. How would you recommend these students like us when we're looking for jobs and folks that, you know, I, I think it's probably a shared consensus here that we'd like to be in places similar to where you were with Trammel Crow, where you felt empowered, you felt like you had autonomy, purpose, authority. How would you sort of evaluate going back in time? What, what, what about Trammel in this case? Are there any characteristics or things that stick out to you that might be worth paying attention to? I think from the business standpoint, if you can find a business where there's growth, strong margins, and a moat, some way to protect, is where you have uh, continued pricing power, growth will see you progress rapidly. So I think from just the business standpoint, that's the winning equation. From the probably the more important element is going to work with people that you like and respect and can learn from. And ultimately, those kinds of mentors are priceless. You can learn so much from them and they'll open doors for you. They'll look out for you. Um, and I, I've told my students here, if you find one of those who's great, go to work for free. It doesn't really matter what your starting salary is. Get the experience. Hang around people who know what they're doing, who are high character, who will open doors for you and let things go where they will go. Yeah. So one of the ways you describe your career before, it's, it's really serendipity. And if I got this right, you were at Tremble Crowd and you were at Stanford teaching and somehow you find yourself building Terminal 5 at JFK. So <laughs> how did that happen? How did all of this, how did this transition happen? Well, so it's interesting. I had a sad conclusion at Trammell Crow Company. I got fired. I was sued in county court, state court, and federal court. I spent a couple of years in litigation. And then I came out of that. And in the meantime, I started buying companies. And uh, somebody said to me, you're in the private equity business. So I organized a private equity company and then raised <laughs> funds and did things. And one day somebody came to me and said, we're forming a new airline, but we, we're going to need to build a terminal at JFK and nobody on the board has ever built a building. So we thought about you. And I said, well, I can't really go on a board unless I have a certain minimum investment in the company. And George Soros happened to be one of the other investors. And so I think it was Soros that cut back and allowed me to invest in the company. So before we had planes or anything, so we built the terminal on time, on budget. It's a great terminal. This is before you had a single plane. Before JetBlue had a single plane, you built a terminal. No, no. I joined JetBlue before we had right. a single plane. Okay. Uh, we, uh, we knew we were going to have to build a terminal. We had taken over T6, which was an old rat and pigeon infested a terminal that has since been torn down, but we operated out of there for a while. And we knew we had this on our, and it was a bet the company decision. You know, this was a $750 million decision for a little startup airline. So we knew we had to get this terminal right. And now we're the largest carrier out of JFK. Was your thought process at the time, did you want to build a terminal and kind of be involved or, you know, leave after that? And how did that progress over time, your involvement with JetBlue? Here's what I always tell my students. I think this is what I do. I've always had goals and ambitions, but they've always been in pencil. 
And the reason they're in pencil is I don't want to be derivative of my goal. I don't want to not be able to throw them away and do something else that comes up. I want to be available to the market to tell me what to do. So I always thought, you know, I want to create a lot of value here. I want to help David build this airline, whatever. But there came a time when it was right for me to step in as chairman. I wasn't looking for it. I didn't really want the job, but it was at a moment in time we were losing money. Uh, we needed systems in place. We needed some of the things in place that I knew how to do. So it, it made sense for a while to do that. And if you look at JetBlue at the time, you know, before, what triggered you to become the chairman, the financial performance or operational performance? How would you relate that to your book? You know, what laws of trust in your perspective was violated and how did you reinstitute them? So I actually think that the reason that I've ended up in most of the positions, so I end up in leadership positions in a lot of instances. And I think it's largely when things are going badly. You know, uh, Crow was kind of falling in on itself when I was asked to become managing partner. JetBlue was losing money. Uh, there was a transition at the Hoover Institution when I was asked to become chairman there. So and I think what that says is that people trust me. They know that I'm going to try to do the right thing by the institution. And they know that I listen. I, I don't make uh, emotional decisions. I'm not a hothead. I really wanted to figure out what is the best thing for institution building? What is the best thing for the long run? Not what's the best thing for Joel Peterson. Hmm. Listening without an agenda. Yeah. Yeah. So your book, 10 Laws of Trust, you, you talk about how these rules can be, um, these laws can be implemented in business. But in, in the political arena, there's, uh, quote, more show pony than workhorse. <laughs> So maybe through the Hoover Institution, you, you might be able to convince some of these folks to, uh, to run for office in our current political environment. <laughs> and I actually think it is a breakdown of trust. You know, I mean, I think so. I think it's going to take leadership uh, to rebuild trust. I remember in the 2016 campaign learning that neither Hillary Clinton nor Donald Trump had over a third of the electorate trusting them. And that's to say two candidates each of which had two-thirds of the electorate who didn't trust them. That's an amazing, amazing statistic. And, wow. um, so it'd be hard to run a business without people trusting you. <laughs> yeah. You, one of the things you said was, I don't make emotional decisions. And that's a very strong argument. That's a very hard thing to accomplish. Some people have strategies. One of the things I do is I... When I realize that I'm going to make an impulse decision or decision of anger, write that email, I just say, stop it. And I sleep on it for a day and I take action the next day. But you don't always have the luxury to do that. How did you develop this ability to not make an emotional decision? Have you had any, maybe an experience in the past where you made an emotional decision, which had uh, repercussions for you? And then how did you develop the ability over time? Yeah. I th so anybody who's ever bought uh, a new car or a new something or other. Those are emotional decisions. And every time I've done that, I'm, I'm always disappointed. I said, I thought that would make me happy. And it doesn't, you know. And so you really realize that. So I, the, Thomas Jefferson was the one who said, uh, if you ever feel like you need to make a decision when you're angry, count to 10. And if you're still angry, count to 10 again. You know, just keep waiting until you let the emotions subside. So I think emotions do affect decisions, but I think it should be, an you, do, you should look at pros and cons 
What are your objectives? What are the alternatives that you've got? And then how might you, what might be the second and third order consequences of a decision? So there's a bit of an intellectual framework that you think through, and then you can let your emotions superimpose on that and nudge you one direction or another. But it should be the last element, not the first. So do you have any tips or tricks for folks like us who are trying to be less impulsive? (laughs) Do you have any mantras or are are you sort of a believer in, in self-talk or, you know, finding ways to motivate yourself and and keep yourself focused on your goals? I am. I'm a big believer in mantras and uh, I think you can rewrite your operating system based on mantras, but it starts with understanding who you are and where are your weaknesses? Where are your limitations? I remember with me, one of the ones that I used to say, to myself all the time was, it's not about me. It's not about me. And, and the reason for that was I was the oldest of five children. Growing up, it was about me. <laughs> I was, you know, I was the child that my parents doted on. And so it was about me. And I saw the world through that lens. And so I had to say to myself, year after year, many times a day, it's not about me. And I'd be disappointed. It just reminded me until I no longer have to say that about me. I really realize it's about the mission. It's about what is best for the team. And so you you rewrite kind of mm-hmm. the lens through which you see the world. That's fascinating. Just going back on leadership, I'm sure you have some, you know, I don't know if we should call them role models, but some leaders that you aspire to. And I've actually listened to one of your prior podcasts when you were talking about Churchill and you even said that you have a picture of him up on your wall. I thought that was quite interesting because Churchill, you know, when, when I look at your 10 laws of trust, humility and, you know, and I'm okay, Churchill doesn't really represent all of this. But then I was thinking on their side, maybe at the time, that's not what Britain needed. Maybe they did not need humility. Maybe they needed someone who was quite authoritative and in a way harsh so I was just curious about how it, it is that it's Churchill is kind of your role model. Yeah, well, he's not in everything. He's a deeply flawed human being. He was an aristocrat who thought he was born to the, he was to the manner born. So there are many things about him that you don't. But in terms of seeing the world through a difficult time, you know, if you look at September 1941 and what was going on in the world after they'd rescued the whole British army from Dunkirk that June mm-hmm. or May. And then the the RAF was trying to fight off the, the and, and the United States was not yet involved in the war. He was standing alone and he stood alone. And so to me, whenever I face a difficult circumstance, I, I look at that picture and I think, wait a minute, this is not difficult. You know, <laughs> we could handle all of that. You know, I can handle what's in front of me. And so he is a role model for that in terms of dealing with adversity. um, And I think in terms of communication, I think he's maybe the most brilliant communicator in the English language that certainly we've had in the last hundred years. It's incredible. So there are things. So I I think one of the great things about uh, selecting role models from history is you get to pick elements of their Mm -hmm. life that you really want to emulate. I'm kind of an aficionado when it comes to African history, and I've read a lot about Churchill, you know, in the Boer Wars, 
down there. So I, I have a little bit different context than most people, but that's fascinating. So I'm actually reading this uh, biography now, which I'm told is the 1093rd bi- biography about Winston Churchill. <laughs> and it's called Walking with Destiny, uh, Andrew Roberts. And uh, it basically captures a lot of things that were never known before. He used to have a Tuesday lunch with the king every week. And so there's a lot of data that we've never had before. And it takes it all the way back through the Boer Wars and, um, you know, it, and in his wilderness years. And I mean, it's, it's really quite complete, quite complex. And you realize how deeply flawed he was. And yet, you know, these elements that I look to are there in an exaggerated form that I admire and aspire to. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating to juxtapose, you know, Churchill with um, the seeming call that comes to you in times of trouble. <laughs> I mean, it's it's part of leadership. It's when the going gets tough that, you know, you, you project confidence and uh, celebrate what you want to reward and, and sort of, you know, be that light on the hill. That's cool. So we were talking about when you came to these leadership positions, it was usually, you know, you were needed because something was not going right. I was just curious if there's been any instances where you were asked to take on a leadership role because, you know, a company was in trouble or there was a situation and you refused to do it. You didn't want to do it and you rejected it. And then maybe looking back on it, you regret it forget maybe not taking it on. Has, has there been any opportunities like that? No, I've always said yes. And part of the reason is because I think if people are willing to trust you when they're in trouble, you kind of have a duty to do that. And, and again, back to this idea that you have a brand. I think my brand is to run toward the fire, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and so if there's a fire, I try to find out where people are suffering. And when, I think there's some times where I've said yes, where I wish I'd said no, but uh, <laughs> where I, where I, I've said no. Well, one question I'm curious, Joel, to hear is we, we've talked about Winston Churchill. He's somebody you sort of look up to as a role model. But is there anyone else who's sort of, and we mentioned Trammell, um, is there anyone else who's sort of played an influential role in your life or maybe somebody that currently has influenced your, whether it's your thinking or your business practices or general life philosophy? So, I mean, I don't try to pattern myself after anybody, really. I I find that there are things to emulate in many, many people, and you ought to pay attention to that. Trammell clearly had a big influence because I was around him a lot. Churchill, because I've read everything I get my hands on about him. And he went through a time that I recognize. Um, in some ways, you know, my dad, even though I feel quite differently from him, he was a bomb disposal officer in World War II. Oh, wow. And uh, so he was on an aircraft carrier that got hit by five kamikazes and was listing at 15 degrees, which is a lot. Uh, it's not much more than that, and you start to sink. And his job was to run towards those burning planes that were full of ordnance and get it off. And so he kind of taught me that, um, plus a bunch of other great lessons, some of which I describe in the book. But he, he was a cheerleader. He believed in me. And um, so I think I've learned that notion from him. Again, you know, he was a, a scholar, and I'm not a scholar. 
So I, I just don't think, I think it's really hard. If somebody tries to be like somebody else, I think it's limiting. Another kind of rapid fire question we had was, um, what gives you energy? So what, when you wake up in the morning or what makes you wake up with energy in the morning? When you get to be my age, you, you can't <laughs> sleep. <laughs> That's what gets you up. But to me, young people, I, I'm a big believer in potential. So I've taught nearly 4,000 Stanford MBAs now over the last uh, 27 years. Um, I have 27 grandkids and seven children, and it's kind of their potential and their dreams and their life. We have, uh, we've backed hundreds of entrepreneurs in companies and helping them achieve their dreams is really exciting. At my age, you don't have that, you know, there's not much left to try to achieve. I've already fallen short of most of the things I'm going to fall short of, and mm -hmm. I've exceeded whatever I thought I would achieve. So it's about other people. It's about young people, and really, partic most particularly about young people. This reminds me, in your time at Stanford, you've really seen two, maybe even three generations. What would you say, I guess, how would you define them, and how would you say that they are different if you look at these generations? Maybe if you had to pick one adjective for each one of them, what would it be? I hate these kinds of questions. <laughs> Doesn't have to be one adjective, but maybe, you know, how do you observe them change in terms of, it could be in terms of risk-taking, it could be in terms of, you know, in a way, rules of trust and how we violate it as young people and how that has changed over time. Yeah, so I'll, this probably doesn't answer it, but I would say that the first few years I taught here, they were a lot like my generation. They were really interested in, uh, you know, building families and communities and wealth and companies. And, you know, they, they were pretty driven to do that kind of thing. It's why they went to business school. Mm -hmm. Then there became the dot-com era and people were becoming overnight millionaires. I mean, just absolutely overnight. And they were actually quite dismissive of professional education and management and whatever. Now, when the dot-com boom ended, they all of a sudden said, huh, maybe I should have learned something um, in business school. But there was a dismissive era. And I think the era right now, uh, you know, a lot has been written about the millennials. There are, and, I, and I think a lot of it is relatively accurate. I think they are very idealistic. They're passionate about what they care about. I do think in some ways they over-index on certain things. And um, so I think there's kind of an artificial, uh, whether it's social justice or racial equality or whatever, they're looking for things to be unjust. They're looking for causes. And I think they miss a lot of what's really going on because they have such a fixation on that. I had one student um, a year or so ago divide my class period into 15-minute segments and keep track of how many women I called on in each 15 minutes, how many men, how many minorities. How many, and of course, during some 15 minute segments, it was weighted one way, others yeah. was weighted another. And I just thought, how sad that that's what somebody would index on, you know, rather than what can I learn to make the world better? So I think there's, there's that going on now. <laughs>